Spoiler alert. If you do not want this film ruined, do not proceed. There's spoilers galore. You have been warned. Welcome to Talk Classic to Me, the classic film podcast and movie club where I, Sarah Greenfield, your host and classic film enthusiast, bring in my entertaining friends to talk about classic movies or any other old-fashioned form of media that strikes my fancy. On today's show, we are talking about the film Leave Her to Heaven from 1945 with my brilliant guest, Sarah Royce. Sarah, welcome to the show again. You're two weeks in a row. Thanks for being here. Do I get like a punch card or something to show all my participation? You get your two timers club <laughs> punch nice. card. So actually Sarah is filling in for another friend of mine. Shout out to Jamie Lynn Beatty who um, had to take her dog to the vet today. So Sarah being a total badass subbed in um, and we really appreciate it here. But it actually works because the movie we're watching this week is Leave Her to Heaven. Last week we watched All That Heaven Allows. The two go together so beautifully. So yeah, it ends up working out. We're doing two movies with heaven in the title that are melodramas and that look gorgeous, except one is like a happy, joyful melodrama and the other is pretty much gone girl, but in the 40s. It's funny, when you said like, hey, you want to watch Leave Her to Heaven? It actually took me a second to remember which one that was because there are so many movies with the word heaven in the title. And then when I, I texted you back and I was like, is that the one with the batshit lady? Like that was all you needed. Like, yep, yep, that was it. Uh, which I hate that trope of like women are crazy, but this is an excellent like, she's a villain and it works. So, <laughs> I mean, that's a big spoiler. Jean Tierney, who is so epic in this. Um, I'm going to mention up front, this is not a movie that is going to win a bunch of Oscars and be exceptionally deep. This is a frothy, delicious, suspenseful melodrama. And it's like just exactly what we all wanted to watch i think it was it hit like it was all the right feels for this week i think um so sarah what do you think of this film i mean aside from all the bat shittiness going on i mean it's beautiful to look at i don't know i honestly don't love this movie okay just because yeah I, I feel like i have seen that trope of the crazy lady who can't take no for an answer and ruins the man's life like i've seen that so many times and so much of it is rooted in deep misogyny that like when i see that trope again i'm just like ew no get away from me i think what helps me in this one is she's so fabulous while she does it and you also have the the juxtaposition of women too so i think that's what makes it more palatable in this case uh First, let me do, uh, uh, what's it called? A plot summary for the people at home who, again, like my darling mother, who actually did watch the last movie. I was so <laughs> proud of her. Normally, she just likes to hear what the movie's about, but doesn't like to watch them. But she actually watched um, All That Heaven Allows, so I was very proud of her. But <laughs> this movie is Leave Her to Heaven. It's about um, this writer who meets this incredibly beautiful, vibrant woman on a train as you know, oh God, on a train, you know something's gonna happen there. He meets this woman on a train. Um, they're both staying at the same person's house in New Mexico. What are the odds? Um, and while she's there with her family, they're scattering the ashes of her father who meant a lot to her. And she realizes this writer looks a whole lot like her father and she becomes obsessed with him. Um, but she's beautiful, so he falls for her too, and they think it's love, but really it's just her slowly ruining everything around her. Not just his life, but the lives of everyone she meets. And then she ends up killing people because, you know, you can't be totally obsessive and crazy unless you kill a few very innocent, sweet people. 
Um, and then she tries to frame him, or no, she tries to frame the woman that he ends up loving after her, who is her adopted sister for her murder, which was actually her killing herself. It's a lot like Gone Girl. It has that, all of that in there. So that's the plot of the movie. <laughs> Set to gorgeous locations with gorgeous clothing and hair. So that's the other half of that. Um, I should also mention, Sarah and I originally saw this movie together for the first time at TCM Fest, and we saw it on Nitrate Film, and it was so stunning. Oh my god, I cannot express to you enough. If you ever have an opportunity to see a film like in nitrate form, I know there's only like five theaters in the country that have the capabilities of showing nitrate film. Oh my god, it's worth it. Absolutely. So I actually went and dug out the TCM program from the year that we saw it. And I can't even remember, I think I had just like read something about nitrate film. And I was like, oh, we should see one. And there was one nitrate film playing per night that year at the TCM festival. And for whatever reason, the other three we couldn't do. This is the one we could. Neither of us had seen this movie before. I was like, Sarah, no, you don't understand. Nitrate film. It's so cool. We got to check it out. And then it kind of became a thing after that. We made a point of seeing nitrate films. So we saw it at the Egyptian theater in Hollywood. It is one of only a handful of theaters in the country that are set up to play nitrate films. And the reason is because nitrate film is like amazingly flammable. Like what the Egyptian had to do was they had to outfit their projection booth with all this like fireproof cladding and make sure like everything was safe and secure just so that they could screen these films. And they don't let you sit in the balcony during nitrate viewings. Uh, Sarah and I love to sit in the balcony at the Egyptian theater uh, because it's so much fun to see movies up there. But they specifically will not allow anyone up there during nitrate films just in case it catches on fire. <laughs> yeah, well, and also it does get a little hot up there. Yeah, so th it's like, it is a little weird. It's like, yeah, you're kind of taking your life in your hands every time you see a nitrate film, but so worth it. <laughs> it's so beautiful. It's very like rich and kind of creamy looking. It looks almost like a painting when it's on nitrate. So yeah, if you can do it, we highly recommend it. And I actually think this might've been our second nitrate experience because our first one was that really terrible uh, Ginger Rogers movie that's so misogynistic, it hurts in your body. The one about the oh, dreams. Yeah. Was it Lady Lady in the Dark or Lady, I forget what it's called, with Ray Milan. That was the year before then? I think, because I think we wanted to check out Nitrate, and that movie was so awful, but the, it was so beautiful that we were like, it doesn't even matter what we watch. It's going to be gorgeous. It was Ginger Rogers dancing in, like, Technicolor dream sequences, and we were like, yeah, this is so No, I don't think she was dancing. So I think it was a straight, it was based on a straight play, and it was the one about her dreams, and it was the one where it's like, you shouldn't work. You're a woman. That's a man's job. You're slowly becoming a man. It was really... Remember? Oh, okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> there was no dancing. I wish there was dancing. There was no dancing. That movie was introduced by Rose McGowan, right? And she was like, you guys, heads up, this is super misogynistic, but it's yep. so misogynistic, it becomes funny. Like, it's just like ridiculous. It was laughable. That was our first one. But this one was my favorite one that we've done because it's already a gorgeous movie. You have all of these gorgeous locations. You have, first of all, like a beautiful sumptuous train. I wish trains looked like that. And then you've got your mid-century modern New Mexico retreat. You've got the desert and all the mountains. You've got Back of the Moon in Maine, which is on this beautiful lake. You've got Bar Harbor with the beaches. You have all of these gorgeous locations and you're seeing them in nitrate and they're stunning. And you've got Jean Tierney, who is also gorgeous and she is she is head to toe like chic. She is 
fierce and bringing you the looks. Yeah, it's it's funny too because well, I guess not funny, but it's something that continues to this day. She was so beautiful that people didn't take her acting as seriously. It was like she could have just gotten up on screen and just like you know done nothing, and everyone have been like, oh, she's so gorgeous. But she was actually like a legit talented actress and this was her only oscar nomination even though she should have been nominated for a heck of a lot more stuff that she did and her life is fascinating like what she had to overcome in her life she she lived one of those lives that's like the incendiary blonde life that that movie that idea like she had a full life full of so much heartache and drama um i know i was researching her a little this morning and in her earlier years she belonged to like the country club set basically and she was groomed to be a debutante and um when she was 17 she went on a trip to california and someone spotted her and was like you should be in pictures and her family was like no you're a debutante come home but she was so bored in society that she eventually decided to be an actress and her father was like oh fine if you want to be an actress you have to be a legit one and so he paid for training for her and she ended up being on broadway and uh, that's kind of how she got her big break was being in shows on Broadway. And then, you know, she went back to Hollywood. She married a costume designer, Oleg Cassini. He was a fashion designer and costume designer. Yeah, I feel like I've seen his name in the credits of a ton of movies. Like, if you, if you were to rattle off a list of his credits, it'd be like, oh, yeah. And she, I know she suffered from undiagnosed bipolar disorder. So she would have manic episodes. Um, no one would really know what to do. She fell ill quite often, and she ended up um, receiving over like 27 shock treatments or something like that and became a huge opponent of shock treatments. Oh, um, God. I know. And so people would like say, ah, oh, she's difficult. And I'm like, she was undiagnosed bipolar. Like, her yeah. life was probably very difficult for her. And then on the other end of, you know, of the swing, like she had a fling with JFK. So, she sure like... did. Oh, my God. Her fling list was was like epic it was epic so yeah she had a romance with jfk but he was like i can't he said to her what the guy in legally blonde says to Elle woods he's basically like you're not serious enough for me i need a serious wife and i just went oh my god <laughs> so yeah she had a fling with jfk in the younger days of jfk and she had a fling with Rita Hayworth's husband after he had divorced her, Prince Ali Khan. She had a, a romance, or she married Howard Lee, who had married Hedy Lamar before her. She, apparently, Howard Hughes uh, tried to seduce her, and she was not having any of that. But they remained friends for the rest of their lives. And he uh, ended up paying her, she, oh, it's really sad. She uh, gave birth to a daughter who I think she was deaf and mentally disabled uh, when she was born because she was born prematurely. And Gene uh, Tierney had gotten rubella from a crazed fan who broke quarantine and met the star at a Hollywood canteen. Her life is insane. Her life is a huge, dramatic thing. But that was like a very upsetting, um, you know, moment in her life. That's really depressing. Your child is born prematurely. You have like no control over this. And Howard Hughes paid for all of her child's care. Oh, wow. So like, good friend. Um, and her, yeah, her child ended up needing a lot of care and was institutionalized. And it's, that's very tragic also. So I don't want to underplay that. That's a tragic moment, but. Uh, yeah, she had a, a very interesting, lots of sadness, but lots of adventures kind of life. Definitely. Her, her page was fascinating. That's all I was looking through going, oh my God. And she just, she kept coming back. She kept uh, trying to do more work. A lot of times she was too ill to do work. I noticed that one of the things she was supposed to be in was return to Peyton Place, but she couldn't 
you know, come back. And I thought, oh, Peyton Place would have been perfect for her, you know. Yeah, but at least we have the performances she did, you know. I mean, there's Laura, the incomparable Laura. There's my one of my favorites, The Ghost and Mrs. Muir. I knew you were going to say which it. <laughs> I, love, I love that movie so much. And she's, it, it's crazy because she's completely different in that movie. Because in, you know, in this, uh, in Leave Her to Heaven, she's like the crazy femme fatale, yeah. the fatal, you know. And then in The Ghost and Mrs. Muir, she's like this quiet, meek, demure woman who's finally learning how to stand up for herself so she has a completely different arc and again it goes back to what i said she she had an amazing talent as an actress that unfortunately often got overshadowed by a her looks which were incredible and b just the you know the undiagnosed bipolar in her the rest of her life outside of hollywood yeah i agree she's very talented and I think what's cool about this movie is it does play with your expectations on her because I think when I saw it, I didn't know anything about it. I think Dave Carger introduced it and he told us this anecdote about how Jean Tierney with a group of friends wanted to stay at someone's lake house or something like that. They had rented it from someone. And because this character was so villainous, the woman uh, didn't feel safe renting it to them. And Jean Tierney had to go and convince her that she had just been acting and playing a part and she wasn't really like that. But that was the only really uh, idea I had going in of like, oh, this character is probably going to end up in some sort of, you know, nefarious way. But when you're watching it, the way it unfolds at first, it's a love story. You're rooting for her. She's bold. She's smart. She's not like anyone else. And the expectations you have with her family, you notice right from the get-go, now it's red flags. On the second viewing, you go, oh my God, they were warning us the whole time, just like a good movie should. But we interpret that differently. So we interpret it like she doesn't fit in with her family. They just can't accept how brave and wild and awesome she is. But now we go back and look like, oh, she just can't be part of a community. She doesn't know how. Oh, she tears things apart. She doesn't know how to build and grow. It's even in their names. I looked up what their names mean because I had a feeling they meant something. Ruth means companion and friend. That's her sister who ends up falling in love with um, the main character, the writer. And then Ellen means like bright light, shining, beautiful. There's the flashy option and the safe option. Yeah, well, it's, except first I thought her name was Helen, like Helen of Troy, and then I realized it was Ellen, but I still looked up the names. And yeah, it was like bright, shining, ray of sunlight, flashing versus like companion, friend. And I think the metaphor of this, or like not the metaphor, the deeper meaning of this film would be like, hey, don't just fall in love with and marry the first beautiful thing you see. Get to know someone because personality matters. She decides like days after she meets uh, Richard, who's the author, that they're going to get married. She just like announces it. And he kind of has that moment where he looks at her like, what? When did we decide that? Yeah. No, she decides everything. She's bold. And again, originally you're like, oh, she's so cool. And then you find out how controlling and scary and manipulative she is. And the things she says to him aren't things of love. They're things like, I'll never let you go. And like, you'll never get rid of me. And like really intense, scary things that can sound romantic, but are really just red flags. No, and I think she walks that line, too, in the beginning. If you go into this movie like we did, not knowing anything about it that first time, yeah, you're like, oh, this is going to be a romantic movie. I'll never let you go, you know, all that stuff. Like, you don't hear it. It is interesting, though. I actually made notes. Like, her family says stuff like, oh, nothing ever happens to Ellen, or Ellen always wins. 
And it's said with this note of resignation, it's kind of like maybe, you know, your radar goes up at that point and you're like, huh, that's kind of an odd thing to say about your daughter slash sister. Like, oh, she always wins. That's just the way it is. Nothing bad ever happens to her. Well, and she sets things up. She orchestrates things and they go... They go beautifully at first, but you can't keep that up forever. And also, she never thinks too far ahead. So she just thinks about the immediate thing she wants and doesn't think about the consequences of it. So when she's waiting for him to show up for her, she waits 12 hours out in a desert. Still looks gorgeous, by the way. He shows up for her. But then in the future, for example, when she kills his younger brother, Danny, the sweetest little boy, he's what, like 16 or 17, maybe younger than that, I don't know. But the main character has a little brother named Danny, who is in a wheelchair at the beginning of the film. We don't really know what's wrong with him. So I wondered about this because there's there's like a trend of when you have a character who's sick in these movies in the 40s and 50s, you never say what it is. It's just like, oh, they're under blankets, they're in bed. He has polio. He's recovering from polio. So they never say that word, he has polio or he's recovering from polio. But there's that shot of Richard and Gene Tierney driving up to this place called the Georgia Warm Springs Foundation. Uh-huh. An audience watching this in 1945 would have known exactly what that was because it was a known, it was a hot springs there. There was like mineral springs there that were naturally occurring and people would like take the waters. FDR had actually gone and received treatment for his polio at that exact same spot. And then he like later built a summer house for himself nearby so that he could continue taking the waters in private. So like, as soon as people saw that sign, you know, a 1945 audience, it would be like, oh, okay, the little brother has polio. He's recovering from polio. Yeah, cause you're right. We don't really know that cause polio doesn't exist anymore. So we don't have that reference. Sarah, that's so smart. That would be like, if we saw someone pulling up at the Betty Ford clinic, we would understand more of what they were there for as a modern audience. Oh, that makes so much sense. And this is, you know, like, again, this is 1945. So Jonas Salk's polio vaccine is still 10 years off. And so polio is still a very real concern. People are catching it person to person spread. um, And it, you know, it's devastating people and leaving people in wheelchairs. Like he, he apparently, I mean, it's obvious from the the movie that he suffered muscle weakness and nerve damage because of the polio so he's having to relearn how to walk he's in his wheelchair at first and then he gets on crutches and he's trying to you know get his muscle tone back after surviving this this terrible disease and gene tierney's character is pretending to help him and they're on a lake and she's trying to teach him to swim so they can have a surprise for her husband uh look how far danny can swim and what she's realizing is her whole like MO is I just want this man all to myself. If I have him all to myself, I will be happy. And um, with Danny there, Danny, while delightful, is kind of a cock block for her. She's like, stop getting in the way of my romantic moments. Because, yeah, that is frustrating in terms of they show a scene where like, uh, her and her husband wake up in their twin beds, which I noticed because of you, Sarah. They're twin beds. They yes. wake up. She climbs into his single bed. She looks gorgeous. And she's all like, hey, baby, I love you. I want to look at you every single day. And Danny on the other side of the wall knocks and is like, hi, everybody. You want to go swimming? And she's visibly pissed. And what I thought was like, lady, if you just had boundaries, if you were just like, hey, we need some time alone. Or if you used your words to explain things, you wouldn't have to murder people. Yes, yes. Kid brother does not need to come along on the honeymoon. I mean, no. I, 
kid brother needs to take a step back. It's interesting too, because like I am, I'm sure that she didn't immediately jump to I need to murder the kid brother. She probably <laughs> jumped to because she, you know, there's a scene of her asking him about like, so were you in school? What kind of school did you go to? Did you like that? Well, because Sarah, she wanted him to go to boarding school. She was waiting for him to say, I'm going to boarding school so he would be sent away. That's what she was waiting for him to say, and he said it. She didn't want him there. And she is, like, trying to speed up his recovery process because she wants him to go to boarding school and get out of her hair. The doctor even says to her in that one scene, which is, like, the first scene where we see her crack, he says to her, like, wow, yeah, Danny has made such incredible strides just in the past few weeks, just since you got here. It's amazing. So, yeah, she's definitely hitting the accelerator on his long recovery process just so he can get out of her hair. Yeah. And then it just kills me that, she, again, she doesn't think ahead how this will affect her husband because she doesn't have, like, normal human emotions because she is you know, a psychopath. You're right. The first thing we see it is when she's talking to Danny's doctor, she's playing him like a fiddle and then she drops the facade for a minute. And I think, isn't she calls him a cripple or she says something like that. And we see the doctor's face fall and we see him immediately understand who she is. And that continues to happen with Thorne. He's like a caretaker. Caretaker, that's the word, of the land at back of the moon, their main property. So... We, we see these people start to see through her cracks as we see through her cracks. This is all happening in real time because we're not sure who she is yet. And then she reveals it more and more and more. And the second we really know who she is is when she's in a rowboat and she asks Danny if he would mind giving them a few weeks alone. And Danny's like, no, I want us all to be together because he's a kid. By the way, you can also tell him, hey, you're going. You can use your words better, Jean Tierney. Yes. Whatever. Communication. You can communicate to him what you want. That's okay. So anyway, she's telling Danny she wants some time alone with her husband. Danny's like, I don't know about that. And so in her head, she's like, okay, so I guess this kid has to die. So <laughs> Dan they're working on Danny swimming home. And she's like, I'll guide you with my boat, Danny. Just follow my boat. I'll show you the way home. She puts on these shades. She is still and cool as hell. And Danny starts swimming, and we kind of think this is going to happen, and we're like, no, she wouldn't really do this. And as she's rowing, she's, like, cutting Danny down a little bit, verbally. I know. It's and, then, yeah, and then he's like, I have a cramp. I ate too much. Oh, no. And then he starts to drown, and she just watches him with her shades on. And she just lets it happen. And then eventually she hears her husband on the trail and does the whole act after she knows he's dead of like, oh, no, Danny. And she dives into the water and pretends to rescue him. And it's awful. It is so cold to watch. That's when we know exactly who she is. And she defends it. That's also how we know who she is. She totally stands by what she did. She would do it again in a heartbeat because it benefited her. And that's all she cares about or thinks about. Then um, that was a rough moment. <laughs> oh boy. That whole scene mirrors what she had told Thorne in an earlier scene. Like, oh, I had a terrible nightmare that I was frozen and he was drowning and I couldn't get to him. Like everything she says in this fake nightmare that she had later plays out in exactly that same way when Danny drowns. And it made me wonder, because like I said, I don't think she immediately jumped to kid brothers in the way he needs to die, except that nightmare makes me think that, no, this was premeditated. So I don't know where I stand with the whole, like, from the outset, was she determined to kill the kid brother? Or is that something that came up later and she was like, well, I've tried everything else, so all that leaves is murder. You are so smart, because she always does have a plan, even at the very end when she's going to kill herself but make it look like Ruth did it. She sends the letter in advance to the district attorney, who was her former fiancé, of course. 
who still doesn't know who she is. He still sees her as beautiful and like vivacious. But yeah, you're right. I hadn't thought of that. I think maybe what if she was laying the groundwork in case? Like this might have to happen. So I'm laying the groundwork. Yeah. So she says that to Thorne. She, I don't think she tells Richard her fake nightmare. She only tells Thorne. So they're already at his cabin. And maybe at that point, Danny has already said, no, I'm not ready to go back to school yet. No, I want to hang out with you guys. You know, it's the three of us. Maybe by that point, by the time they get to the cabin and, you know, there's only that thin wall in between the, the two bedrooms where you can hear <laughs> everything going on. She's like, okay, yeah, the kid needs to die. And so she's which, already laying the groundwork, which is oh terrible. God. It's terrible. It's such a psychopath thing to do. Like, that is not the only solution. Oh, my God. It's actually very disturbing to watch her use, like, her abuser tactics because it's like watching her cut him off from the rest of the world. In the beginning when she's like, no, I don't want a maid. No, I want to be everything to you. And fitting into this perfect idea, this perfect mold of what she thinks a wife is and what her character should be. And she always puts on this character when she's around him. Um, like even with the doctor, the doctor sees her true cracks and who she really is. But the second her husband comes back in the room, she puts on her facade again. If I am the perfect wife, I'm going to do everything perfectly. And it's funny to see when she can't hold it together anymore. When her sister and her mother visit her at back of the moon, I think her mom knows a little bit of what her daughter's capable of and what might happen. So it's not clear, you know, when we first meet Ellen, she is headed to New Mexico to scatter her father's ashes. And we, so we learn right at the top, okay, her father is dead. She was very close with her father and Richard looks exactly like the man. But we don't ever really hear how did her dad die. But then later on, there are these intimations Ellen was directly involved with his death somehow. They never come out and say it. And it makes me wonder if it's in the book. Like, like this, this movie is based on a novel and it makes me wonder if the novel is more explicit and like she was so intense her dad couldn't take it anymore and so he ended his own life it's hinted at and so even though the audience doesn't know how dad died the characters obviously do and so the mom knows or maybe she has some inkling of what exactly happened when her husband died and that ellen may have had something to do with it that drives me crazy though because like they know they know that she's nuts you know ruth and the mom and yet they cater to her constantly. They show up at the cabin as a surprise and they can see that Ellen's upset and they're like, oh, maybe we shouldn't have come. So they immediately, like two days later, they're like, okay, we gotta go. We can see Ellen's upset, so we don't wanna rock the boat. So we're gonna get out of here, sorry. Well, because it's like, what do you do with that kind of person? I wouldn't know how to handle that kind of person. Well, I would know. I mean, people at home, I have a similar, I have a family member who does have a personality disorder that is very difficult to deal with. Um, and so honestly, every textbook ever is just like, you just can't deal with that person. So I'm shocked they didn't cut her out of their lives. I mean, I guess if they did, terrible things would have happened too. She's just a bringer of chaos and horror. So what do you, what are you going to do? How do you handle that kind of person? Yeah. And I, it makes me wonder, like, couldn't they have just pulled Richard aside, the writer aside and been like, Hey dude, watch out, be careful. She's nuts. You know, would he have listened? And also it seems like whatever she wants, she really goes after. So it's almost like, sorry, you're screwed guy. You're totally screwed just by existing. But then once you get to the part where she's like, she's killed Danny. And they must have suspected, even though it's being posed as like, oh, poor Danny, he was recovering from polio and he 
he drowned. What a tragedy. Mom and sister must have had some inkling like, oh God, she was out there on the water with him. She must have had something to do with this. Well, we know the mom does. I think the mom said something towards the end of the movie where she kind of understood what had happened before other people did. After Danny's death, she just kept it to herself, whatever suspicions she had about Ellen's involvement. Well, because what are you going to do? There's no way to prove it. No, but like someone's dead now. It's one thing if your crazy daughter is just making people miserable, but now someone's dead. Like an innocent bystander. But they said Ellen always wins. You can't fight with someone that always wins. Like there's nothing, nothing to do. And then also we should mention, so after Danny dies because she kills him, um, again, very stylish scene. It's such a great villainous scene that I cannot recommend watching it enough just because of the way it's shot, the way it's handled, the way her mind works. And that's the one scene she's wearing these cool sunglasses and you you just see a little glimmer of her eyes. It's very cool to watch. Again, horrifying, but cool, you know? And so you get that. And then later on, she decides, okay, I know how to handle this situation. He's sad about Danny. I'm going to get pregnant and have a baby and that will make him love me again. But she's so vain and so terrible that she's like, oh no, I'm pregnant. I can't have him look at me because I'm pregnant. So um, she feels even further away from her husband, who she gets really jealous of his relationship with her sister because her sister, as we know, her sister Ruth, kind, compassionate, shown to us several times as a gardener. She grows things. Um, she plays the piano for other people's enjoyment. Like she, she builds and grows community as opposed to Ellen, whose hobbies are like, I'm going to hunt and kill things. But she hunts and kills things. She wants to ride her horses. She demands immediate pleasure from things. And winning is part of immediate pleasure. Um, she doesn't have like hobbies that cultivate things. Whereas Ruth does have hobbies that cultivate things. They're trying to show us the juxtaposition of these two women by their hobbies. That whole pregnancy is ridiculous. That, I so mean... ridiculous. From a modern a modern viewer looking at that and seeing, you know, there's that one scene where she comes up the stairs and they're like, Ellen, you shouldn't have gone up the stairs. You're pregnant. It's like, okay, slow your roll. For like a shockingly long period of time, the accepted medical wisdom was that a pregnant lady can't do anything ever during the course of the pregnancy. I mean, like in the movie, she couldn't even go up a single flight of stairs without people spazzing out that she's going to lose her baby. I mean, as late as like the 1970s, people were like, no, if a pregnant woman exercises or engages in any physical activity, she could lose her baby. Or if you know a woman who isn't pregnant does that, it could affect her fertility. She might not be able to have children. Like that, all that stuff is ridiculous well and that's you know she decides she doesn't want the baby and this is the bummer of it because i'm like oh god if it was today i would hope you would just be able to like get a safe abortion you should not have to have a baby you don't want but also she plans it so it looks like she tripped and fell down the stairs or she says she was sleepwalking and tripped and fell down the stairs. I'm sure you saw the same thing I did about how this was a point of contention with like the Hayes Code office. They had to tread carefully with this because they don't want to seem like they're endorsing abortion or, you know, heaven forbid, a woman having control of her reproduction. I guess in one of the earlier drafts of the script, she's like, oh, I'm so ugly and misshapen and my husband won't love me anymore. So I got to get rid of this kid. And so they were like, no, she shouldn't terminate the 
pregnancy because of vanity, you know, rewrite this. So she's worried that the baby will come in between her and her husband. And so she has to get rid of it. And so they do, they kind of judge the script a little bit. So it's like, she's jealous of her unborn child thinking that it will steal her husband's affections from her. Which does track with the rest of the script and with her character. And which does track with people with narcissistic personality disorder. I'm not an expert. I don't know about all the disorders. I just know about that one in particular. <laughs> so that one times a million plus something else. It's just, she doesn't think it through. You're creating another Danny. Ooh, she's, she's incredibly intense. But like the whole thing of a woman not wanting to be a mother being used as like a character point to show like how villainous she is. I mean, cause some women don't want to be mothers and some women are like not interested in that life. And that doesn't make them less of a woman. Like that whole misogyny thing. Preach. I agree. I have problems with that, using that as a character point to show like, look, this woman doesn't want a child. She's a monster, you know? I totally agree. And I think that's the only way they could think of, I guess, back then, because we, we have the Danny death, but that's quote unquote, that's not enough. You know, we need to show how really villainous she is. And the only way we can think to do that is to kill her unborn child. Like, yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah it's it's rough that they use it, uh, that particular idea as a villainous trait. But she does do it stylishly as hell. She puts on her kitten heels <laughs> and her blue nightgown that is just a gown. And can I say, like, the music leading up to the moment, you know, when she's getting everything set up, she puts on uh, this very pretty shimmery dressing gown, which is a total contrast from, like, the schlubby brown robe that she had on before. So she gets herself dolled up. She pulls out the heel, the slippers, and there's this portentous music playing the whole time. And then there's her standing at the top of the stairs. And then there's like a intense angle. The camera shoots down the stairs and you see them. They look so steep. Like this whole thing, it's set up so dramatically. Oh, it is. And the music, Alfred Newman did the music and it's beautiful. I think it's a really great score because it shows, it's got this like beautiful underbelly, but then with these notes that come off as it gets very epic and sweeping and there's like sharp and flat and like, oh, it gets a little bit, yeah. I don't know, like dangerous sounding or like off sounding. I love that. It's like haunting. It's a really cool score. It is. A, it is a very beautiful score. Yeah. So the, I liked that too. Thanks for bringing that up, Sarah. I'm looking <laughs> at my notes and I wrote her love kills. Uh, and the scene, why does she also put, she puts arsenic in her, in her bath salts and arsenic in her sugar. So, so she's really sure to go either way. Is that what that is? I don't know. I guess. That didn't make a lot of sense to me, but she sets it up so that she is going to kill herself when he, her husband wants to leave her because she has been behaving like a psychopath. And also she admits to him and I quote, yes, I let him drown and I do it again. She tells her husband she murders his little brother who he loved more than anything and expects him somehow to still love her now that she's been honest or something. And instead he's like, hey, I'm leaving you. There's a line earlier in the film which she says, if you leave me, I'll die. Guess what? If he leaves her, she will die. So she kills herself, sets it up to make it look like a murder makes it look like her sister has done it with all of these details she has gleaned. It is very Gone Girl, very Gone Girl. It's interesting you bring up Gone Girl because I was wondering as I was watching it again last night, like 
I don't understand that whole thinking like, well, I'll kill myself and that'll show them. Like maybe she didn't intend to kill herself. Maybe she just was going to take a little bit of arsenic just enough to get sick. And then she would have already planted the letter she sent to her DA ex-boyfriend. Maybe. Things would be set in motion and she could say like, oh, I was afraid for my life. I thought Ruth was going to kill me. And then she tried to, but oh, I'm going to be okay. You know, like I wondered about that. We'll never know. Because, well, because also the president of mind it would take so I actually looked up what happens to you when you get poisoned with arsenic Uh and it's like it's like a mess like she's suffering from multiple organ failure she's not just like oh I'm poisoned and then slips into a coma her body is destroying itself like yes but she's a person that can wait for 12 hours in the desert without food and look stunning like this is who she is she is sheer willpower so for her I do think she did mean to kill herself because actually in Gone Girl that woman intended to kill herself. That was all part of it. And then when it came down to it, she was like, mm, you know what? Never mind. I'm just going to keep living on the lamb. Um, sorry, spoiler for Gone Girl, but really, again, that came out a long time ago. So at this point, you should have seen it. Um, and this, I think this is better than Gone Girl, but this also plays on your expectations like Gone Girl in that in Gone Girl in the beginning, you kind of like and trust that main character. I think her name's Amy, right? Amazing Amy. Yeah, it's Amy. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And same with this. You like and trust Jean Tierney until you start to see the cracks and until you understand who she really is and who she's been showing us that she pretends to be this whole time, if that made sense at all. You start out flummoxed by how beautiful she is. Like the first shot of her is her staring at Richard for an uncomfortable length of time. I wrote, this is creepy. But there's like a, like a a super close up shot of her face. You know, it's Jean Tierney. So she's just like, so yeah, maybe you do get a little bit bamboozled by how beautiful she is, you know, Richard and the audience alike. Yes. Well, and people with this disorder are, one of their main things is that they're very charming off the bat and then they love bomb you. So she is love bombing him. You know, it's very hard to understand in the moment. Guess what? It takes time and you should have gotten to know her better before you just married her, you fool. But (laughs) yeah, it's, she's practicing these things that like abusers do. (laughs) That's what they do. They love bomb you. They cut you off from people that you love who would help you and center you and help you to see that like, maybe you're being gaslit. Maybe this behavior isn't normal. Um, But she's so charming and so beautiful and so free and wild with herself. Like, that scene where she's scattering her father's ashes, it's actually kind of funny to look at because she's so intense about it, And but she's so powerful. She's on horseback. She's scattering her father's ashes, looking straight ahead, going like left, right, left, right. And yeah. <laughs> it's like this very intense, beautiful, powerful moment. So I get seeing that and thinking that's incredible and falling in love with that. Okay, so maybe, maybe the scene in the doctor's office isn't the first time you see the crack. Maybe it's when Vincent Price shows up. Vincent Price plays her fiance who she just randomly woke up one morning and decided eh, I don't want to marry him anymore I want to marry this writer she's like sends him a telegram or something saying like hey baby it's all over so he flies in from wherever he was he's like in the middle of a, an election campaign because he's running for DA and so he shows up and you can see like her attitude does change the second she's in the room alone with Vincent Price she's like walking all over him he's because he's madly in love with her and he says I will always love you no matter what and she says is that a threat? Yeah, she's like mocking and minimizing the way that he feels about her. So she does like this strong, powerful vibe she's been giving off since the beginning kind of falls away when she's in the room with him and because she turns into like a, a jerk. 
I agree, but I think that I think that takes a second viewing to understand because I think in the moment they're playing with our expectations of what we know about politicians. This guy's probably a dick and good riddance. Like that's what we're kind of thinking. And also I love that it's Vincent Price because, you know, everyone at home, Vincent Price, he's the horror guy. He's got this awesome voice. He's so cool. I always forget how good looking he is because he's a radio person a lot and because he does the horror films. I literally wrote down in my notes, Vincent Price is hot. He's hot. He's very attractive. And we forget. But yeah, I think they're playing on our expectation of that. And so eventually we do find out like, oh, he was probably just like a nice, normal guy that loved her. He never saw who she really was. But you're right. That's when we as an audience first see her being cold. But I think we can interpret it at the moment of like, oh, she's come to her senses and he was probably a jerk. Except then there's also a a moment later. I think it's right after she's announced that they're going to get married. And Richard's like, wait, when did we decide that? The two of them are sitting and talking. And he says something about like, if you had been at Salem 100 years ago, they would have burned you at the stake. Side note, nobody was burned in the Salem witch trials. This pisses me off. People have so many misconceptions about the Salem witch trials. Nobody was burned at the stake. I didn't know that. How, how were they killed, Sarah? They were hanged. Oh, oh God. That makes sense. Hocus pocus. It tracks. Well, and it was also worse than you think. Oh no. Yeah. I mean, in the 19th century is when they first, they figured out, oh, well, if the person's neck snaps, then that kills them instantly. They didn't have that in 1692 during the Salem witch trials. So it's a pretty gruesome way to die, but it was not, they were not being burned. Anyway, just correcting a little bit of history there. Nobody was burned in Salem. He went to Harvard. He should know better. They do paint him as a golden boy though. So I actually also think that in the way We watched The Last of Sheila in one of these, and we talked about how, like, the characters that you feel okay about them dying, it's because they did bad things in the past. So you're like, okay, well, I guess it's okay in story world that they die. Um, But in this in story world, we're kind of okay. Well, we're totally okay with her dying because she clearly was a villainous murderer like Danny. But he, we're kind of okay with him having to go through all of this stuff because he has such an obnoxious golden boy resume that you're like, ugh, you deserve some nonsense in your life because his life is perfect. He's like, went to Harvard, did everything exactly right, uh, wrote several novels, was successful immediately, traveled the world, am handsome, am a very kind person. (laughs) So like, he's so perfect that you're kind of like, well, I guess things could shake you up a little bit and that's the only way we accept it yeah like the one thing that is wrong in his life is unfortunately you know his poor younger brother suffering polio and that's that's like the only hardship he has in his life well and he can fix it with his money and they're gonna fix like his brother's getting care everything's gonna be okay so again not i'm not saying in real life i want bad things to happen to people i'm saying in story world the reason we're okay with not as many great things happening to him is because he's already had like a perfect life so you're like, well, maybe a little hardship is fine. He'll pull through, all right. Maybe two years in jail, which seems excessive for his quote-unquote crime, is fine. Also, I want to set this up. I love it how they frame the beginning because they frame it as we see um, like someone picking him up. I forget. Is it off a train? I don't remember now. Well, we, whatever it is, we see someone picking him up and that people in town are ostracizing him and that there's a woman waiting for him at a cabin and we know he went to jail for two years. Like, that's all we know going in. So we're kind of like, whoa, what is this? What happens? Huh? And then you forget about it. And uh, it turns out in the end, he goes to jail for two years for withholding evidence. And this is what I want to get into, Sarah, because that courtroom scene was nonsense. First of all, what gets his future fiance and love of his life, Ruth, off of like going to jail forever is his word that Ellen had confessed to him. And I was like, how does that hold up? You have zero evidence. 
Why do people just take your word, especially when you quote unquote withheld evidence? Also, the DA is hammering at him. Are you in love with Ruth? Are you in love with Ruth? And he's asking Ruth, are you in love with him? And I'm like, none of this is relevant to the case. Why is the defense not stopping this? That's what I was thinking. Yeah, it's a melodrama. So the court scenes are all very melodramatic very although i guess an argument can be made that vincent price the da who's you know serving in this case he needs to establish that yeah these two people were in love so they needed to get rid of ellen in order to be together also conflict of interest much that is the motive but i just felt like it was so ridiculous to the point of like come on why is the defense not stepping in i would object i would i'm not a lawyer but i would have objected i feel like there would have been grounds for like badger the witness because he's yeah. like getting right up in their face like do you love her it's so uncomfortable it's so awkward and eventually they're both like yeah we love each other but we didn't love each other at the time but then the melodrama thing of her making the plan with mexico uh so the writer dedicates his book to the sister instead of his wife and her jealousy the wife's jealousy goes out of control Ruth is like, I'm going to go to Mexico. And the second that Ruth says that, <laughs> they turn the book sideways and you see that there's a sombrero on the cover of the book and on the side of the book is the Mexican flag. And I was yes. like, wow, they're really hammering this home that he wrote about Mexico and that Ruth wants to go to Mexico. They really want us to get this <laughs> symbolism. I was like, oh God. So yes, her evil plan consists of, oh, I see my sisters leaving the country. I don't think anything's going on between them necessarily. Maybe there is, but she's leaving the country because of him and going to the place he wrote about in the book that he dedicated to her. I've got a plan. <laughs> it involves my death and her being framed for it. I mean, it did all fit together very nicely. I would say evil genius. It definitely looked like they were going to poison her and then run off to Mexico. And you have everything already pretty much been lined up. She just had to send that letter to the DA, ex-boyfriend, to get things in motion. So she just assumes he's going to lie on the stand, I guess. But why is his evidence considered okay? When he's like, she confessed to me, he has a great line about it too. She was that kind of monster, was his line. Because Vincent Price is like, do you expect us to believe she was a monster? And he's like, she was that kind of monster. Because she was. Now that it's established that they're both in love with each other, I feel like his evidence would not be listened to. And also, what a terrible lawyer. He still goes to jail for two years for withholding evidence, which to me is, that's a lot of time. That no, seems... But also that charge is crazy because it has nothing to do with Ellen. I think it's because... Richard goes to jail for two years because he withheld evidence related to Danny's death. And it's like, what? Oh, I didn't know that. I thought it was related to this case. I didn't think it was about Danny's death. Oh, wait. Now I'm, I'm getting mixed up. I can't remember. Well, I think that they had to set it up that way because in the beginning, we had to not understand what was going to happen. So we had to think maybe he had done something wrong and that she might be waiting for him, like the she being Ellen instead of Ruth. Like, we don't know the setup. I think they just had to have it that way that he had to go to jail so we could be confused by the beginning. This is what I remember reading. It's from the Wikipedia article, which, you know, grain of salt, I guess. It says, Richard is sentenced to two years imprisonment as an accessory in Danny's death as he withheld his knowledge of Ellen's actions. So he apparently admits that he knew Ellen was involved in Danny's death. It wasn't just a drowning. But he wasn't being tried for that. He was being tried for killing Ellen. Well, that's a whole other trial. So we just don't see that trial. And his lawyer, again, is not a very good lawyer. And his lawyer's blabbing all over town. What about confidentiality, lawyer? Yeah, there's like this framing device with the lawyer just sitting down and telling a stranger about his client. And it's like, I wrote down, is there no lawyer-client privilege going on? 
on here? Like, what the hell? I wrote down view from a bridge. I was like, of course, there should be lawyer-client confidentiality, and there is not. But it's a mellow, again, it's a melodrama, much like last week. I also was wondering if this was the same lake as Magnificent Obsession, because it looked a lot like that lake, and it was gorgeous, but it might not be. And, oh my God, Sarah, oh my God, guess who directed this movie? Uh, Stahl? It's John M. Stahl. And he also directed the original Magnificent Obsession and the original Imitation of Life, further tying this to last week's episode featuring Douglas Sirk's version of All All That Heaven Allows, because he directed both Imitation of Life and Magnificent Obsession. Fascinating. And this movie, too, later inspired Douglas Sirk. And I mean, it makes sense with all the beautiful Technicolor cinematography and the melodrama. Yeah, for sure. You see the connection. This movie, clearly, it looks like a pre-Douglas Sirk. Douglas Sirk. It's stunning. It's visually stunning, gorgeous. Again, if you don't want to watch the horror, just watch it with the sound off. But it's beautiful. I can't say enough about how gorgeous this movie looks. I also noticed that Joe Swirling, who I thought, I got excited because Jean Tierney, Jean Tierney spells her name like a man, G-E-N-E, which I think is so cool. But then I saw Joe Swirling and for a minute I was like, ooh, Joe Swirling, a woman? Did a woman write the screenplay? No, it's J-O, but it's a man, Joe Swirling. But Joe Swirling also wrote Lifeboat, the Hitchcock film, which makes sense. And Mm -hmm. he wrote It's a Wonderful Life. He helped write the screenplay for that. He wrote the screenplay for Pride of the Yankees and for Guys and Dolls. And all of those make me very, very, very happy. Wait, did I see that he actually wrote the book for like the stage musical Guys and Dolls? Or was it just for the the movie? You know what? I couldn't tell. Because, yeah, it's based on Damon Runyon's stories. Yeah. So I feel like he maybe he did write the book for the play. It looked like he won Tony. So that would that would track and make sense. That's quite a quite a writing pedigree. I just realized, too, Gene Tierney was a protege of George Abbott, who directed Guys and Dolls. So it's like kind of all in the family, like the stage play Guys and Dolls. That made me happy. And those kinds of things. all It sounds like he's really good at adapting things because those are all based on other stories. So to me, that sounds like this is based on another story. He's probably really good at adapting. But yeah, it is it is a horrible trope of like the villainous woman. But I think this is better than other films because at least we see her perspective and at least she's a total badass who goes down swinging as opposed to like out of the past where I do love out of the past in certain ways. But I've always hated the the way they told that story with the woman Um, because it's like they make her a villain, but they make her really weak, too. And I don't like that at all. If you're going to be a villain, be this kind of villain. Be like the smartest, coolest, badassiest villain there is. Go all the way. Be an equal opportunity villain. She's just as villainous as a man. And she's so fabulous while she does it. So, yeah, if you're going to be a villain, go full villain. But you're right, she shows range in that she's completely different in Laura. She's completely different in The Ghost and Mrs. Muir. To me, those are her, like, her biggest films, the ones that I'm the most familiar with. Um, she worked with Otto Preminger a lot, I saw, too. She did Whirlpool with Otto Preminger, The Razor's Edge. I wrote down she's in Pleasure Seekers. I enjoy that movie with Anne-Margaret in the 60s. <laughs> oh, I've never seen that. Um, it's fun and silly. Uh, Heaven Can Wait, but not like the, you know how there's like the 70s one and the 40s one where it's like, oh, there's yeah. this one's from the 40s, too, but it's like the angel one. This is a different one. I love Heaven Can Wait with Warren Beatty. I know, me too. Um, what else did I write about her? Oh, she became a smoker to lower her voice, which is just like, oh, God. Oh, no. Uh, yeah. Oh, she's also in The Razor's Edge with Tyrone Power. I love that movie. That's a great one. And yet, sorry, I think you said that. I did, but that's okay. I didn't say with Tyrone Power. I should have added that because I know you and I know you would have seen it if I had said Tyrone Power. Um, oh, we haven't talked about any of the other people, though. I mean, Cornell Wilde's in this. 
Um, I know the only other thing I really know him from is The Greatest Show on Earth. That's pretty much how I'm familiar with him. I know he did lots of other things. Oh God, I don't even remember him from. The, I've seen The Greatest he played Show Sebastian. on Earth, and I can't. I can't even remember that movie. I kind of just like forced myself to sit through it. And then I was like, okay, never have to watch that again. Um, I've totally seen it a couple times, several times. He plays the one that ends up with Gloria Graham's character. Like the, I think he's an acrobat. So it's like Charlton Heston and um, Betty Hutton end up together. And he plays like the second tier of lovers. Like they both, they were all in different love triangles. And then he and Gloria Graham were like, never mind, let's be bad boys together. Like, let's be in each other's love triangle. I am looking at his filmography. I have seen almost none of his work. Although Same. I have seen, he was in a movie in 1955 called The Scarlet Coat, which I did see. He was totally overshadowed by Michael Wilding, who I thought was super attractive. And I followed him through the movie. Got it. Well, no, because a lot of his movies looked almost like B-movie-ish. There was one yeah. that was supposed to be like Robin Hood, but it wasn't, you know? Like you're playing Robert of Nottingham instead of like, you know, you're, it's, it was weird. Oh, yeah, yeah. The Bandit of Sherwood Forest, huh? I wonder who that could be. Yeah. So it's like he seems to play these leads, but in not A-list pictures. And he's like a handsome, cool guy. I wrote, he's Jewish. I went, yay. Uh, you know, MOT representing. But yeah, th I don't really know him for many things. But he fits the bill in this because he just seems like a very sweet, open, nice dude in this. Y you go along with him. He's a little bit hapless, but delightful. Seems humble enough. So yeah, you're, you're willing to take the punches and roll with him in this one. Uh, and he's like cool enough that he fits with, uh, I keep forgetting her name, Jean Tierney. I keep wanting to call her Jean Crane, who also spells Jean differently. It's very confusing. So many Jeans on this picture. Ellen and Ruth. He fits with both of them. Uh, you understand why they would be interested in him. That's also what's cool about Ellen is she's so smart as well. I do love that she's intelligent, you know? She can keep up. She's witty. I like that. But again, she's also evil. So there's that. <laughs> um, and then Jean Crane is also in this. I enjoy her in A Letter to Three Wives. She's so good in that. I love that movie. We'll probably watch it on this show at some point. Um, she's also in State Fair, Cheaper by the Dozen. She was in a bunch of other things too, but those were the ones I was like, I recognize you from those. So I wrote them down. Yeah, Letter to Three Wives is great. I like the way that movie is framed. It's kind Me of too. a mystery that lingers right till almost like the very end. I think maybe we just like suspense and mystery, but told from like women's perspectives. I think that's what we like, Sarah. I'm trying to think, is there any stone that we haven't like overturned, left unturned? Is there anything else we need to add? Have we covered it? It's weird. So I was taking notes as I was watching because I things pop up while you're viewing and you're like oh I want to make sure I bring this up I comment on this or whatever or like my thing with the Salem witch trials yeah thank <laughs> you for bringing it up the historical narrative um it's crazy because like maybe like three quarters of the way through the movie I just stopped taking notes well I think that's good because I felt like my note taking was interrupting my flow of watching because I did take copious notes as well and that's what's funny to me about this is I take copious notes and then I forget everything the second we turn this on and I go damn it I meant to bring that up oh no and then there's so many notes you can't read them all as you're going <laughs> but yeah I, I felt like I was taking too many notes and I wish I had kind of chilled into it more because it is so beautiful to watch so like lush and gorgeous yeah. and frothy and fun and silly like silly meaning melodramatic silly not funny it's not funny but it is it's over the top I wonder if it's just like being a modern viewer with modern sensibilities there are certain melodramatic scenes or moments that are just like they make us laugh in 2020 I say enjoy the camp. This is Camp 101, enjoy the camp. We're going to get to uh, the double feature segment. So originally I was thinking Laura because that's also a film, even though it doesn't visually look the same, 
Um, I feel like it's a great Gene Tierney performance. I think Dana Andrews kind of looks like Cornell. What was his name? Cornell Wilde. Oh no, Dana Andrews is so much cuter. He's than handsomer, Wilde. but I'm telling you, they've got a vibe that's similar. And it's also you don't understand her character or know her character's true intentions until the end. So I would say that would probably be a really good double feature with this. But I would also say like Mommy Dearest would be a really good double feature with this. Oh God. Because <laughs> you've got that campy, crazy villain. I hate using the word crazy with the woman though. I really hate that. You've got a very campy villain who's over the top, uh, who will do anything to get her away and who ultimately is shown as what she is, which is a monster in these cases. What do you think, Sarah? Do you have a good double feature with this? Honestly, I think Lauro is great um, because like you said, there are certain elements that overlap. They're the woman at the center who is an object of desire and obsession, but she also has her own agenda. And um, I mean, yeah, and it's a totally different side of Jean Tierney, totally different muscles that she's flexing to play that part. And it is a noir. It's so good. I love that Again, different feel, but I think it would be a fun double feature with this for sure. I also wonder if The Mirror Cracked, again, I still have to see it, that movie, it's on my list. Anyway, uh, The Mirror Cracked, apparently parts of it are based on Gene Tierney, and that's a movie from 1980 that I would really like to watch. That's a mystery, but it has all these old Hollywood actors like Elizabeth Taylor, Rock Hudson. I feel like that may potentially be a good double feature, but I haven't viewed it yet, so I can't totally recommend it. I haven't seen that one either, so I can't speak to that, but interesting. Oh, she was, I love you so I can't bear to share you with anybody. And then I wrote, run! If anyone says that to you, you run. Red flag. I pulled out my booklet from the TCM 2018 festival and I have the little blurb that they wrote for it. This is the description that TCM wrote for this when they screened it at the 2018 TCM Classic Film Festival, which is amazing. That's our jam. Beauty and evil walk hand in hand in the sumptuous Technicolor melodrama starring Jean Tierney as a woman who carries love and devotion to deadly levels. On the strength of her popularity in Laura, which had come out the year before, 20th Century Fox head Daryl Avzanuk cast her in her meatiest dramatic role at the time as a socialite whose obsessive love for her writer husband, Cornell Wilde leads her to fire his family servants along with a number of dastardly deeds involving his disabled brother and the couple's unborn child. Cinematographer Leon Shamroy reflected her pathological passions in the picture's heavily saturated color scheme, which would influence the films of Douglas Sirk, Martin Scorsese, and Todd Haynes. Shamroy's work was honored with the Oscar for Best Color Cinematography. Tierney, whose great beauty often overshadowed her acting prowess, threw herself into the role of the mentally unbalanced hair heroine, winning her sole Oscar nomination for the performance. Although the film was met with only mixed reviews upon release, it was Fox's top grossing picture of the 40s. Contemporary critics have elevated the film, pointing out its subversive depiction of post-war domesticity as a trap and hailing Tierney as one of the most underappreciated actresses of Hollywood's golden age. Oh, I love that. It's so true. I like the domesticity as a trap thing. Ooh, that's good. Well, in the Martin Scorsese thing, he did say this is one of his favorite films of all time. And then that makes me go, well, then why didn't you make more of them? Yeah, he's kind of been one of its recent Yeah, champions. but I'm like, couldn't you have made more of them like this then, Martin? Couldn't, couldn't you have ditched your red blood for five seconds? I'm just saying, you could make one like this if you wanted. I'd watch it. So my note to Martin Scorsese, who is clearly a listener. Oh, I did find what her name means. Ellen means beautiful, torch, light, bright, shining, and sun ray. That's what that name means there's a lot of green throughout this picture too I'm always looking for meaning now ever since you did the all that heaven allows thing and I was trying to figure out when there were greens and when there weren't 
Um, but there were greens a lot towards the beginning and blues a lot towards the end. And I was like, I wonder if that's a thing. I don't know. But there was the line when she was swimming. I wish I could remember what it was. But basically, she swims in when she's courting him, when she's chasing him. And she pops her head up and she's like, how about that for an entrance? And I really liked that moment. Yeah, very self-conscious in the way she presents herself. Well, I'm so glad we watched this. I I wish I had noted who did the wardrobe. I noticed that Ben Nye did the makeup and I was like, oh yeah, every kid that's ever been in theater has your kit, Ben Nye. Thanks for doing this makeup. Oh, I did write something down. Oh, except this has nothing to do with the film. It has to do with history. That's fine. Tell it. I am a history nerd. This is 1945, like we've said multiple times. The fact that her dad was cremated and that she was also then later cremated actually like was really interesting to me because even now, like maybe about a quarter of people who die in the United States will get cremated most people still get buried and so back in the 40s it was even more rare and this is only about 70 years after the first crematorium was built in the united states the first very first one was built in the 1870s by dr julius lemoyne in pennsylvania and it was such a shocking scandalous thing that like the very first time he cremated someone's remains like there were crowds of people that came to watch it being done and there was also christians who thought that this was heretical what they were doing to people's bodies there was someone in the town who you know made it known that after i die i want to be cremated and these people were like okay we need to go in there and steal back this man's remains before he can get cremated and give him a decent christian burial it was this whole thing people were very upset by the idea of cremation, thinking it was unchristian, you're desecrating bodies and, you know, all this stuff. And so this Dr. Lemoyne in Pennsylvania was kind of the first one to really show that, no, this is actually like hygienic, it's safe, it's a definite alternative to burying people. The reason I know that is because Dr. Lemoyne is the ancestor of actress Julie Bowen. Oh, (laughs) so that's why you know it, because you had to research it. Sarah works on a show where she does research and so she knows that. Because you're right, that is even a plot point in this about how she had made arrangements to be buried in the family crypt and then told people she wanted to be cremated so it looked like they were guilty because they did what she had asked them, but she had written down officially something else. Yeah, that's, well, you're right, we don't really think about it because that's like a normal choice now for someone to be cremated, but back then I guess you're right, it wouldn't have been. People were very concerned about being buried. I remember like hearing radio shows where like, the ghosts will haunt you until they're buried properly in the earth and you know, things like that. Well, I think that's more a Catholic thing than broad Christian like Catholics have to be buried in consecrated ground and so one thing that like a lot of sailors would do is that they would get a cross tattooed on their bodies to say that oh yeah no I'm Catholic meaning I have to be buried on you know in consecrated ground otherwise if they died at sea they would be buried at sea all right good to know again Jewish don't know these things we have our own system and honestly it's all good oh also before we go there was one thing I did want to point out too which is her relationship with her family and I love that scene between her and Ruth when she goes to Ruth and she's like, you've always been jealous of me. I'm more beautiful than you and I'm smarter than you. And Ruth is like, I'm not jealous of you. I pity you. I see what you're like capable of. You're not capable of loving. And I feel so sorry for you. And that, to me, that was such a great moment, such a great scene and so truthful. Because we all feel that way at this point. You know, now that we've really seen who she is, we are kind of like, oh, God, it's so sad that you are you. You are not this great thing you pretend to be. You're pathetic. Yeah, the level of desperation she feels about just like sinking her claws into whoever she loves and not feeling capable of sharing that person with anyone else. There's kind of something pitiable about that. Like, you can pump the brakes. It's okay. Well, and she doesn't know how to be in a community is what I also noted was 
with her family when they convene as a group she can't be part of it and also they always try to get away from her whenever they're one-on-one if there's one person in a room they leave the room they never want to be around her one-on-one even her own mother yeah even her own mother is like no i can't be in the room with you goodbye then when there's a community she's like sucks the air out of the room and i've noticed this about other people with npd they suck the air out of the room it's like they can't they don't understand how to be a part of a community that's not rallied around them if they were a community that was like, you're the greatest thing ever, we love you so much, she would have loved it. But she couldn't handle it if it's like something outside of her. She can't like just join in. I, I can't quite explain it, but I was like, ooh, I see it. I see you don't understand how to be part of a community. You seek so much domination and control. Uh, and how good your life could be if you just gave that up. And it's tricky because she is beautiful and charming. Uh, what a trap, what a trap, but not just a trap. You also said the domestic trap. And I went, yes, that's also a thing too. It's all, everything's a trap. Ah, It's all a trap. So I guess on that note, oh, and the doctor from the Seawolf played the doctor in this. And I went, ah, you're a doctor, twice. Oh, that's that's the other movie we saw that year. Like yeah. the night, the night before we saw Leave Her to Heaven, you and I went and saw the Sea Wolf. There you go. And the guy was handing out Sea Wolf pins, and I still have my Sea Wolf pin. I have mine too. I feel like I didn't earn it though because I was so exhausted. I fell asleep halfway through that movie. Yeah, that was the year we went full out. I think. I think that was the year I did five movies in one day, and I went, "Oh, five's too many. You can't do Ooh. five again." Four is your point. That's it for you. Yeah. Well, I had worked a full day and then met you at the theater later. And so I was wiped out. But I mean, every year we've gone, it's been so much fun. It's so much fun. I love that festival so much. It's so inspiring and lovely. And I just, I want to do what that festival does, but every week with my friends. So anyway, thank you so much for being on the show today. I, it was a delight to have you as always. Thank you for having me. We'll see you next time on Talk Classic to Me. 